Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's recording of Paideia Today. I'm Scott Masson with my colleague Bill Friesen here. Today, we're looking at uh, another wonderful American writer by the name of William Faulkner. Faulkner is uh, well known for his novels and short stories set in the Old South. Uh, Faulkner himself spent most of his life there in Mississippi. He's certainly one of the great writers of uh, American literature, and in particular uh, of the genre that we would categorize as Southern Gothic, which we've already addressed with uh, Flannery O'Connor. Uh, but uh, Faulkner is probably her predecessor in terms of uh, when he began writing, but he outlives her. He was born in 1897 in New Albany, Mississippi, uh, one of four sons, uh, and he uh, died, I believe, in 1860, or sorry, 1962, so not that long after O'Connor, I believe. Uh, best known for The Sound and the Fury, uh, Absalom, Absalom, uh, and uh, also, um, what else is he known for, Bill? Uh, the Reavers. The Reavers, um, As I Lay Dying, and so forth. So a variety of uh, famous novels, but Bill is going to introduce us here with a little take from the work we're going to look at, which is a short story. It's called A Rose for Emily. Bill. Yes. Alive, Miss Emily had been a tradition, a duty, and a care, a sort of hereditary obligation upon the town dating from that day in 1894 when Colonel Sartoris, the mayor, he who fathered the edict that no black woman should appear on the streets without an apron, remitted her taxes, the dispensation dating from the death of her father on into perpetuity. And there you will hear immediately a bit of the craftsmanship that Faulkner was capable of. We have a brilliant interplay there. There's lots of alliteration. We've got consonants. We've got assonance. Uh, we've got long, big, elegant sentences here. Um, we've got um, a, a brilliant attention to cadence and rhythm. Faulkner was uh, very well known amongst the critics for his attention to the actual aural sound of his writing, whether that be in the short story or larger works like The Sound and the Fury. And there are a number of reasons that, in my view, Faulkner is famous. Um, he, the Sound and the Fury, I believe, um, was uh, voted the sixth greatest novel of the 20th century at a certain point. And um, initially, I approached Faulkner with a degree of skepticism. But when I began reading his writing, it occurred to me that, yes, there actually may be something to the claim that this is one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. And I was glad to have encountered him. Unfortunately, I read the, read the Sound and the Fury over 20 years ago. So my memory of it uh, and my uh, memory of my experience of reading it is not as sharp as I should like, but it's not the kind of text you just pick up and read in an afternoon. It is a formidable text. Mm -hmm. um, much more digestible is uh, are some of his short stories, the most famous of which, of course, is A Rose for Emily. And oftentimes, uh, this short story, along with Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find, are held up as quick, easy examples of the Southern Gothic genre. And just to remind our readers uh, exactly what that entails, these are stories typically set in the American South, Deep South oftentimes. Um, there is a sense of the grotesque to them. There is a sense of the macabre to them. 
Um, they, there's a lot of irony to these stories. There's a lot of uh, decay and sentimentality, but it's not treated, uh, the sentimentality isn't treated with that sort of saccharine approach, which uh, you can sometimes get. Um, it's usually very hard-nosed sentimentality or studies of sentimentality and romance, if you like. And um, this is, comes out of not just the Southern Gothic, but also something called the, the Southern Renaissance. Between the 1920s and the 1930s, there was a broadly based arts movement that grew up in the American South uh, on various centers. New Orleans was one of the big centers for this. And it was primarily a literary movement, but there were other for, uh, forms of expression as well, whereby Southern artists and Southern writers um, abandoned the traditional Southern approach to art and narrative, which had indeed largely sentimentalized in the worst, worst sense of the word, um, the history and the culture out of which they had grown and began to look at it with a new sort of a clarity um, and really began taking it apart. This brings up another thing we should say about Faulkner. Faulkner early on was heavily uh, influenced by Fitzgerald and Hemingway to a lesser extent by Steinbeck to the point where he, he uh, has certain phrases in his early writing, which is, are almost exact matches for stuff that you can find in Fitzgerald and Hemingway. Um, but he does find his own voice and it's a very distinctive and rich and eloquent voice. And this brings up another thing I should mention just in passing here. Uh, when I first heard Faulkner reading, I was taken aback by his extremely strong Southern accent. And it's an accent which is oftentimes used uh, quite unfairly to portray uh, Southern Amer uh, uh, Southerners in the United States as sort of crude, rude hicks from, you know, who were far away from the cultured life and the intellectual life and what have you. And so it's all the more surprising, perhaps, when we encounter people like Flannery O'Connor, whose knowledge of philosophy and theology is extraordinarily rich and rigorous. And when we encounter somebody like Faulkner, um, who is an absolutely brilliant craftsman, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to uh, not just um, his diction, which you heard a short sample here of his diction and his skill with his, his diction, um, but also in terms of his rather ingenious ways of handling plot and characterization. I want to say one last thing here before I turn it back over to you, Scott. Um, I consider Faulkner one of the finest crafters of, of narrative of plot um, in the last couple hundred years. Um, he's extremely imaginative about how he does this. Uh, he changes perspective from past to present, from one character to another character to another character. And yet the whole thing flows uh, very smoothly, very logically. The ideological flow is, it's not hard to grasp how things are moving. And it takes a lot of skill to write like that. And when you stand back and look at it from that sort of technical perspective, you begin to get a sense of what this, this writer was capable of. Um, and in particular, he was also influenced in his early days, um, as so many of them were, um, by the writings of various psychologists, Jung to some extent, but much more uh, significantly Freud. And uh, he took up Freud's um, uh, psychological uh, therapy of automatic writing and like a number of other writers, particularly in the US, turned it into stream of consciousness writing. And just again, to remind people what that is, it's the stream of consciousness writing is where the author writes the flow of thoughts and feelings as they're actually occurring uh, in, in their mind. And so there's no uh, backward. Yeah, there's no there's no backward look, looking editorializing for the sake of coherence and logic and flow and things like this. So this to me makes his um, ability to write these uh, dazzling multi 
uh, faceted, multi-perspective plots all the more impressive. Um, this is something he, he takes uh, to the macro level in The Sound and the Fury, which is broken into four sections from four different perspectives. And then he uses that as a springboard to do some really quite complex things. But we're not talking about that one today. Uh, we're talking instead about the short story. Dr. Masson, tell me a little bit about your impression reading Faulkner. Well, I had not read A Rose for Emily before, and Faulkner is a new um, experience for me as well. I've been wanting to read him for years. He's on my to-do list, but I have several to-do lists on my, even in terms of reading. Um, when I did read him, I was struck by, uh, as you said, the uh, prose style, and also a strong sense, which uh, I think is going to remain with me that this little novella or this little short story um, is saying a bit more than it appears to be saying. It's, uh, it seems to me symbolic in its representations as well. Um, just to be clear to the readers, uh, stream of consciousness is not the mode in which this particular tale is written. Yeah. Um, that would be for The Sound <clears throat> and the Fury, one of the perspectives of stream of consciousness. Um, and it's, it, it fits the character uh, who's doing the recounting there. It's disconnected, uh, just one thought and then another thought and then another thought. Again, connected through a long uh, dash. Um, but here we have um, crafted, uh, grammatically correct, um, and in many ways quite elegant prose. So, um, and it begins in some ways, uh, in the same manner that one of the works we dealt with by uh, Tolstoy did with the death of the protagonist. Mm -hmm. um, and, and here it also begins with, as I say, it's a rose for Emily. Well, Emily, the uh, uh, woman concerned is actually dead at the beginning. When she died, the whole town went to her funeral and we're told something about the very varied responses. The men, through a sort of respectful affection for a fallen monument. That's already interesting. The women's mostly out of curiosity to see the inside of her house. You can see the, the wit here, which no one save an old man, servant, a combined gardener and cook had seen in the, at least 10 years. Both of them are motivated by things other than an actual affection for the woman, and yet, and, and yet she's of importance. So there's, she's a fallen monument for the men. She seems to me to be a symbol of the Old South, and the novel to some degree characterizes uh, an Old South that is not willing to let itself go um, on the people of the town, and for that matter, who Miss Emily Grierson is not willing to let go either. She, that ends up being characteristic of her is that she clings to the past to the point where, well, we'll leave that for a minute. Uh, I won't tip my uh, hand here too much, but she had, as you said, I read this, had been a tradition, a duty and a care, a sort of hereditary obligation upon the town. So Miss Emily is, uh, She's part of the furniture of the town. Um, she has been bequeathed this sort of dispensation from Colonel Sartoris. Sartoris, I mean, the name itself is symbolic. Um, there's a famous uh, novel by Thomas Carlyle, uh, 1836, called Sartor Resartus, the tailor 
retailered. It's about being clothed. It's about being fitted. It's being tailored. Well, there's something that's very aristocratic about the whole setting here, and it's been carefully tailored. But what has been tailored is, is the impressions and so forth, and the clothes don't fit the town anymore. And yet they don't want to get rid of the aristocratic trappings. That seems to me uh, there's strong symbolism even in the names. Uh, and so this is what you were talking about, Bill, uh, at the outset with the terrific use of language to the point of, of names and the connotations that arise out of it. And it's all, all very elegantly and carefully done in such a way that uh, an impression is given to the reader and a real enjoyment for those who uh, like English prose. So that's my immediate uh, response. And the ending was, I'll say, unexpected. <laughs> it's southern gothic so if they've done their job properly it will be both shocking and unexpected it was both yeah yes and it delivers um just a word of warning folks we may well spoil the punchline because there is a big punchline at the end of this story mm. and so if you're uh if you're the kind of person who really likes a surprising punchline you may want to hit pause at this point and go at read this, this point story go before. read the work and then come back to it yeah yeah, now you're, you're correct. Um, the main character, Emily, is indeed highly and richly symbolic. And I think this ties into this faded, moldering, aristocratic culture that you encounter and that the Southern Gothic loves exploring. Um, this isn't the big, fine Southern mansion. This is the big, fine Southern mansion, which has been rotting and going, re returning to nature for the past 40, 50 years. That's the kind of uh, setting you'll find in Southern Gothic and the Southern uh, Renaissance, more broadly speaking. So yes, Miss Emily Grierson uh, is richly symbolic to the town of that world that had gone before the war, the antebellum war of the American Deep South. Um, and she represents all sorts of different cultural values in there that are to be respect respected. So she's, uh, her, her taxes are remitted. Hmm. He doesn't have to pay taxes. And Colonel Sartoris does this, he says, because it's out of respect for her father who has died when Emily was 30. Um, and so uh, it, it's a mark of respect. Does it serve any purpose beyond sort of a symbolic genteel sort of a thing? Not really. Um, but that's the kind of world that, you know, had gone before where you did things simply because they were honorable and respectful and what have you. Later on, when he's gone, and the town tries to return it to return her to paying taxes she simply point blank refuses so emily grierson shows a bit of uh, an ability to dig in when she wants to and she's just not going to move and she does this in other situations in case you don't get it it's a short story but there are several key points where emily grierson is just not going to budge on an issue and i mean she's really not going to budge but look, look, look at the subtlety of the account here uh, so this dispensation, dispensation that she should not have to pay taxes, it's stated by Faulkner, not that Miss Emily would have accepted charity, which is what it is. Yes. Colonel Sartoris invented an involved tale to the effect that Miss Emily's father had loaned money to the town, which <laughs> the town, as a matter of business, preferred this way of repaying, which, of course, no town is ever going to do. And yep. the comment, and this is the, the editor's, not the editor's, the narrator's comment, only a man of, of Colonel Sartoris's generation and thought could have invented it, and only a woman could have believed it. So there's a <laughs> lot of, um, I would say, I mean, this is not, 
if this is satire, it is very genteel. Oh, yes. Uh, satire. It's not the sort of contempt. There is a there's a love of the thing that he's describing. And at the same time, there is a terrific use of irony here, uh, which is seems to me to uh, be uh, e of equal opportunity. He's satirizing everyone. Nobody escapes the narrator satire. No. And uh, and this and just, I think he captures brilliantly the complex relationships Southerners have with their past. Um, which is that there is kind of a begrudging admiration. Um, there's there's a wonder at its detail and and gentility and things like this. And at the same time, it's also at the same time it's a critique. They know oh, that yeah. this isn't. They're, they're they're not romanticizing this world. It's got major problems with it, and Miss Emily has major problems as well. And here we're going to move maybe a little bit into <laughs> the plot itself. Uh, her father is an overbearing man, so Emily gets her stubborn streak uh, very honestly. And he refuses to allow his daughter to see suitors uh, until she's about 30, at which point he dies. Um, and if you know anything about that kind of world, 30 is way past your best before date. And um, her the, the likelihood of her um, uh, getting married diminishes very significantly, so much so that she, it seems like that's never going to happen. Yeah. Until she meets a northerner. He's a northern laborer. Uh, by the name of Homer, again, great choice of names, but you, you find this kind of the, these references to um, the ancient world and ancient literature and ancient mythology actually uh, sprinkled around the American Deep South with surprising frequency. So initially, it's surprising to run into a Homer and then maybe not so much. Because we got, as you mentioned, you got the Satoris character as well. But he's an odd bird is our Homer. Um, a, he's a northerner, so immediately there's a, uh, a symbolic setup waiting to go between somebody who's prototypically antebellum southern and somebody from the north who's come Yankee? in. Yeah, and possibly is looking to exploit people in a vulnerable situation in the American South uh, for a, a great range of reasons. Not quite a carpetbagger, he is a laborer at the end of the day, mm. but still, there you get the sense there's something vaguely exploitive about him, and sure enough, he locks on to Mrs. Emily, but he doesn't lock on to Mrs. Emily. There's talk of a marriage, um, and uh, preparations are made, and then he goes there one night and vanishes, and that's mm. an end of that. And again, Faulkner reveals the grotesque situation carefully step by step. And you, you sense what is coming, but not quite head on. Hmm. Um, she buys arsenic. People frown upon that. What hmm. are you buying arsenic for? Maybe it's for rats or something. But nevertheless, there you are. Arsenic. Um, this guy just vanishes. And it seems like she's been jilted by uh this homer character it's said that he prefers the company of men and is not really the marrying type mm -hmm. is that's the southern genteel way of saying that he's actually a homosexual and therefore this is not really the kind of relation we could relationship we could expect to be fruitful i don't know um again faulkner is very careful he's very genteel he'll never take it uh, all the way and, and tell you the simple rude fact uh, you're left with a whole range of eloquent possibilities, some more mm. likely than others. Mm. Um, so there's some very careful weaving on the part of Faulkner as he builds this situation. But Miss Emily is also interesting to me, not just for her broad symbolic value of a, a vanished world. She's also fascinating as an actual individual. She has a tragic individual personal narrative that would be quite rich 
all on its own in this story we're not all even if there were not all these other possible symbolic broad macro references to the american uh, antebellum aristocracy and that world out of which she came um so there's two levels you can read her character the actual woman herself as an individual and uh, the woman as a representative of a broad and now lost or vanishing culture um what else do we want to say about plot and character dr Madison? yeah the symbolism i mentioned at the outset um in, from colonel sartoris is also there in the title with the rose uh roses are in uh literature often symbols of uh of secrecy confidentiality and so forth so there's a whole category um of legends that are called sub rosa um mm -hmm. which um here the secrecy is on the part of emily herself but also perhaps something between the narrator and miss emily there's a sort of um complicity there uh, there are secrets there are things that we know in the south uh, about goings on that we don't really want to reveal there and that that's part of the southern gothic uh, feel of the whole tale i would say uh, is that there's an element of mystery to this more so than the the, the work we looked at previously by o'connor uh, didn't quite have the same uh, mysteriousness about it. It didn't have the same richness uh, and uh, and tacit um, things that were being said by not being said. There were unstated uh, things. So even the commentary about the Negroes, which were in both uh, works, um, here it was presented in in the form of what was the what was the phrase at the outset um, uh, that. Uh, Colonel Sartoris said he had fathered the edict that no Negro woman should appear on the streets without an apron. What a, what sort of an edict is that? Um, extraordinary. It's it because it sounds, in some ways, uh, well, it, it's micromanaging to put it uh, uh, kindly, but it also wearing an apron. Well, to to symbolize the fact that he's a tailor, yes, but also that he is. Um, stating that there's a certain uh, social rank that goes with wearing an apron and women should be acting a certain way. So there are certain ways in which these things that are largely unstated, but nonetheless still have an effect on the reader. Um, and so that's that's all I would add to that. Um, yeah, you get the sense from a comment like that, that there's an entire narrative strand there, with which if you just pulled on it, there'd be a whole nother story waiting to happen. Exactly. Yes. How did the conversation get to this edict? Um, also, I, I, I'm struck immediately by, uh, of course, his name and the, the notion of sartorial laws and sartorial rulings. Uh, these are rulings that have to do with clothing and costume and what have you, usually taking the form of something like sumptuary laws or stuff like that. Yeah, and, the, and um, so then you get into uh, etiquette and what the etiquette signifies for those who are, are living there. And again, the northerner you mentioned. Uh, doesn't understand that and doesn't understand the decorum and to some degree maybe that brings him into conflict with Miss Emily. Uh, she has certain understandings and he doesn't understand what she understands and so there's a lot of misunderstandings and it's partly because subtext is not being uh, read very well by the characters but of course we the readers are reading a text with a subtext as well so there are layers on which you can read the story and it all but for me, as somebody who reads professionally, um, is quite a, leads for quite a delightful story. Yeah, the 
Uh, you make actually a good point about the the etiquette and the decorum. We have to remember here that the etiquette and the decorum aren't they, they are not arbitrary. Um, they serve a purpose. Now you can agree with the purpose or disagree with the purpose, uh, but uh, um, you can uh, critique the purpose or various aspects of the purpose of the decorum and the etiquette. But you first and foremost have to understand what it's doing, not just what it is, but what is its function. And then you can say, only then can you say whether or not this is something you are willing to go along with. Mm. Um, and as you say, Homer does not understand the nuances of not just the decorum and the etiquette, but what it's supposed to do. And for Homer, the consequences of not doing that. Not abiding by it. Okay, this is the last warning. Uh, listeners, um, I'm about to go give on. the big reveal here. Yes. So Homer vanishes. And of course, uh, after the funeral, everyone wants to get into the house and have a look at this place that has been sealed off. It's a tomb of wondrous mystery. And it's dusty and it's dark and it's dilapidated and full of all sorts of weird baubles and what have you. But they find a room upstairs and the door is locked. And so they break it down. And what should they find on the bed? All these years later, it's our man Homer, or rather what's left of him on one side of the bed, his desiccated corpse, dried and shriveled. It uh, initially stank, and the townspeople said uh, 10 years prior, it must be rats or something that are dying in there. But uh, they went, again, observing decorum, they went by night and sprinkled quicklime around the house and what have you, and, and the smell soon dissipated, so it's fine. They didn't know that it was actually the decaying and drying out corpse of our man Homer, who seems to have been the victim. It's never said again directly, but he seems to have been a victim of the arsenic that Miss Emily has bought. But wait, it gets more twisted. There is a pillow beside the corpse as well. So everything's laid out very nicely in the bedroom, heavily dusty and what have you. But the pillow beside the corpse has an indent and a single gray hair on it. This is where Miss Emily has been sleeping for who knows how long, right beside the corpse of Homer. So, yeah. And, and of course, the, this... the, the body had apparently once lain in the attitude of an embrace, but now the long sleep that outlasts love, that conquers even the grimace of love, had cuckolded him. What was... <laughs> What was left of him rotted beneath what was left of the nightshirt had become inextricable from the bed in which he lay. And upon him and upon the pillow beside him lay that even coating of the patient and biding dust. There we are. And she yeah. and, 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 and is in some sense, he not the rose for Miss Emily. She's the dried rose of her affections lying beside her on the pillow. Yeah, the, the, the rose is just, uh, you're, you're right, the corpse is like a dried rose uh, preserved forever. Um, you it could reminds also me a bit of Miss Havisham from uh, Great Expectations, mm. this, right? The jilted lover who yes, can't, right, wandering stuck around in the, in the moldering uh, wedding dress all day long. Yes. Yeah. Um, good. That's, 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 that's a great reference. Um, yeah, there's also a brilliant sort of thematic elegance streamlining to this when it all comes together the whole story in my mind is like at the thematic level is like a gigantic periodic sentence all these little bits and pieces are all sort of floating and working together but you've got to maintain them all in your brain until you get to that last scene and then it all gets drawn together and you realize that cycles of life and death decay and rebirth and what have you have been stopped and stunted both uh, in the individual life of miss emily 
Um, she will never marry. She will never uh, give birth to the next generation of the Grierson's and all the stuff that comes out of that and the world that comes out of that. And the American Deep South, likewise, um, it got to an end, came to an end, and what's it, it, what's it going to be reborn, reborn as? And the grim answer here seems to be nothing. It will decay like the corpse decays over here and all the hopes and expectations that came out of that, and the whole thing will return to nature, just as uh, Homer is returning to nature. Um, so the cycle of, of life and death has been stopped for everybody with all that goes along with that. Um, is it morbid? Absolutely. Um, but this <laughs> classic Southern Gothic is just what you would expect. A horrible yes. twisted turn at the end of the tale. And you'll find a lot of this in a lot of Faulkner's other writings uh, as well. You, these, these moments of shock and horror uh, and, and the grotesque playing out through these sorts of things. But this is a classic instance of it. And I, I, I know even from when I read this as an undergraduate, I still have a freeze frame image in my mind of that dark, gloomy, dusty room with the corpse on the bed the beautiful monogram toiletry set laid out on the, the dresser nearby. I... And it's an image uh, that, that I'm going to carry with me, I suppose, to, to my own grave um, of this, this corpse and the indented pillow beside him and the idea of all that comes out of that. And what makes it even more morbid is that this wasn't just a recent thing. She had been, this had become a recluse, reclusive lifestyle over a decade where she had been doing this. Hmm. And I, I could only imagine what uh, the servant must have been thinking because he must have been in on the action, as it were. Um, but of course, he as they as they move into the house to explore it, he quietly it said he he walks out the back and was never seen again. Yeah. So he's another vanishing character. There's a whole another narrative there that we don't get to hear. And and this is another thing that Faulkner I think does really really well is that when you read one of his stories, you feel all the threads of all these other stories, some of which will get told to you, but most of you won't. And in that sense, I think of him a little bit like uh, Tolkien. Tolkien, you feel that there are stories in every direction, but you're only really getting this one and an occasional echo of these other stories will get mentioned, but you never get the whole thing. And it, it makes the world in which you find yourself when you're reading Faulkner extraordinarily rich um, in ways that other writers can't seem to it can't seem to achieve what more did we want to say about this story in particular or Faulkner more broadly well so here's my I, I was reflecting on this and we, we've done now three gothic uh writers in some ways we did we did Mary Shelley so yep. early instance of gothic um and and one of the more famous ones in in Frankenstein although it's quite a uh, an odd story as as gothic it introduces science fiction to some degree mm -hmm. and uh and the themes related to that and now mm -hmm. we've had two southern gothic writers question is what's with the preoccupation with the gothic and the and the setting of the gothic and the um obviously it's something that the goths uh, as in those living in the medieval period are not interested in this per se so this is a new type of thing um this uh, gothic setting and gothic themes and the preoccupation and the horror what does it all symbolize what does what what's the fascination with this this morbid fascination uh, amongst very good authors and yeah. for that matter culture in general what is with that bill shall we comment on this yeah um absolutely 
the attraction of the horror genre, however conceived, whether that be as gothic or something else, uh, it seems to be in terms of literary history, uh, something that uh, waxes and wanes throughout the centuries. And so you have periods where horror stories are really uncommon. There doesn't seem to be much of an audience for them. There doesn't seem to be much of an attraction there. And perhaps that's something about the cultural, the culture and the zeitgeist of the age. Um, so finding horror stories in our conventional sense are, uh, it's very difficult to do, for instance, during um, the first half of the Enlightenment or parts of the Renaissance and what have you. And even as you move into the high medieval, but if you go back further and start reading the Norse and the Anglo-Saxon, they love being terrified. They find it highly entertaining again. Uh, the Romans had a taste for ghost stories, but the Greeks not so much again. No. And so you see this explosion uh, here from um, about 1800 onwards with a fascination with the Gothic. And then it, the Gothic doing what this kind of genre always does is it begins to split. I think of it sometimes as a cell. And then there were two, and then there were four different subgenres to it. And then there were eight and so on and so forth. So Southern Gothic is one of these do-it-yourself branches that goes off and, and begins to splinter, by the way, into its own new forms um, yeah. of, of literature. And so what is the attraction to this? And I was thinking about this the other day. Probably the most significant early writer around the Gothic to take this up as an object of speculation is Anne Radcliffe. And I'm not sure yes. if I spoke about her during the Frankenstein episode. I, I, believe, we, I believe we did. Yeah, so she makes a distinction between terror and horror. And to her, um, so terror is the anticipation of the dread thing that brings you to the brink of the sublime, but now very negative, horrific form of the sublime, but it's still the sublime and therefore it's still attractive. Whereas horror is its actual outplay and the realization of the monstrous thing that was anticipated. And that is kind of a lesser moment. So some people nowadays talk about the terror conducing to what we call the psychological horror and the horror uh, of Anne Radcliffe conducing to slasher flicks and things like that. So there's, there's kind of a division between those two. And some people have a taste for the psychological. Some have a taste for the more visceral horror movies. Um, and so there's a natural split there. So mm -hmm. we've got that, the, the terror of the sublime. I would also um, add to this that the reason we like being scared by a good, or, or at least thrilled, because frightened isn't really the right word for a story like this. The reason we find this a rush with a rose for Emily is because it brings us to the brink of what, uh, of the numinous. And then I don't know if I've spoken about the numinous in here before. Not I, sure. I, like, I, I like C.S. Lewis's uh, illustration of it. He says, imagine you're in a room and there's a flimsy door. And in the other room, you're told there is a 500 pound Siberian tiger. Of course, you're frightened. Uh, because you're in, in mortal danger. Um, if that thing gets through the door, you've had it. So you're frightened. But then imagine if somebody told you and you believed that there was a powerful ghost on the other side of that door. And like I said, and you believed it. The species of fear you're feeling for this in the, the second in instance is very different than the type of fear you're feeling in the first instance. And again, it has something of that uh, uh, Radcliffian terror and the sublime to it. Um, and it's interesting to contemplate uh, this sort of thing. And it makes you feel very alive and very uh, invigorated and what have you, even as you're horrified and terrified and all this sort of stuff here. Um, I myself, I, I, I find myself attracted to narratives like this. 
Uh, and I've oftentimes wondered what exactly is drawing me into what, what is the attraction here? And I, it's, it's hard to put my finger on it. But of course, if it's the numinous, it would be beyond my ability to merely. You're, you're a sick man, that's all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a distinct possibility too. We we, we need to <laughs> something to do with Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is probably the right, the right one. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it, and I also noticed this with certain classes and certain demographics of students. Um, sometimes I will ask uh, a class who here actually enjoys, let's face it, scary stories, and sometimes I'll have a class of forty students in front of me, and not a hand goes up. And another time, like just the other day, um, I asked the same question because we were looking at Frankenstein and every hand with one exception in the classroom went up. They all like it. Hmm. So immediately I begin, I, I'm immediately curious what exactly in terms of demographics here is ma making this broad dramatic difference. I, yeah. I haven't got an answer for it, but it's an intriguing question to me. So the, um, you, ref you mentioned the numinous, um, mm the the man in the 20th century that speaks to this uh most I, I, at greatest length at any way was a, a man by the name of rudolf otto uh he wrote a book called the the idea of the holy and it was influential on lewis you mentioned lewis um and he is he his thesis is that this sense of holiness or the numinous uh undergirds all religious experience so it it mm. it has to do with the the mystery of life um and also the holy otherness of of some experience and my thesis in relation to uh shelley and probably here as well in relation to shelley is that she's writing uh against the backdrop of modern science and the enlightenment and its attempt to control nature and to dominate it and to uh penetrate its mysteries and and to uh do new things in the case of frankenstein to create life out of you know butchered corpses and yep. put them together and there's a sense of desecration that's happened there um and it happens and it happens and and science is capable of doing that but there's a sense that a taboo has been broken and that there are consequences for that. And the, the consequence is, of course, visited upon the scientist by his creature, um, the monster. But the, the, the real monster in Frankenstein is, of course, the scientist himself who's broken the sacred taboos of nature and, and the, the holiness of life. And really, I think that's what Frankenstein's talking about. Here, it's more a sense of the holiness of tradition and and there's an you, you mentioned the etiquette and the decorum and there's a certain um setup to life uh however um questionable in certain ways so the attitude towards the negroes um the attitude towards the aristocrats as opposed to the you know the hoi polloi and the and the yankees and so forth there's a certain unspoken and probably in some sense somewhat illegitimate um, establishment there nonetheless um there's a sense that modern life is in some sense uh desecrating the holy order of the past and so that makes it a fit vehicle for this gothic um sensibility which which conveys again this sense that 
there's something holy that's been desecrated and and horror ensues but it the horror ensues because we have a sense that something uh that is in the the new order of things is gravely wrong it violates something uh sacred as i said and and i think that's what and and you use the word numinous that's Otto's word here and i think it it and it evokes a reaction of silence as well and there's silence in this novel as well there's not it's not actually stated what's going on. There's often what we said, there's a subtext here until it's revealed at the end. Um, but there's a power in the tale. That's, that's my best take on it. And it's largely describing a world in which uh, traditional religion has been disregarded, set aside, seen as irrelevant, seen as in some ways obsolete. Uh, and yet um, the notion of the sacred remains with us. And these authors tap into that. Yeah, maybe here we're getting, in Faulkner's case, closer to some sort of uh, Jungian influence or Could something be. of the sort. Yeah. Um, what struck me as you were talking about that is that uh, Faulkner's stories, one of the things they do extremely well, and they do it through this lens of genteel Southern eloquence, is that they're highly allusive stories. So many things in here. Faulkner lets you draw the conclusions yourself, you make the connections yourself as the reader. And there's something deeply richly fulfilling about doing that instead of having the writer just tell you point blank. We, we all know the old axiom that creative writers hear time and again, you must uh, show but not tell. Faulkner does that on steroids. Um, you're, you, you make your own connection about the fact that he's not the marrying kind and all that that implies and the, the whole thing with the arsenic, but it's never directly said and you have to make that connection yourself. But we could go on with example after example in this one short story alone. And this is it, part of, I think I'm just, I'm just discovering this now, is that I think this is why I find much of Faulkner's writings highly poetic because poetry tends to be much more elusive uh, and much less direct. And this is highly elusive prose. And, and that matched with that wonderful uh, rolling uh, diction that he, that he employs, and those beautiful, long, elaborate syntactical structures. Um, it all comes together in kind of a big package deal. I also wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you're right, there, there's something about of the, the religious and the sacred that kind of hangs over almost like a smell in the air of these, these stories, and particularly the Southern Gothic. And it's sometimes quite horrific and grotesque, but nevertheless, it's there and it's, it's very palpable, it's very rich. And uh, insofar as that goes, there's something almost mythological about this. And that's, it struck me again that um, when Faulkner was writing this, uh, many anthropologists were putting together models of mythology and pretty well all of them reduced the myths to mere ideological tales, yes. tales meant to explain the cause of things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and least, yeah. yeah, and it's incredibly reductive. You really, really missed the point. Um, another writer, uh, in this case, an anthropologist who I have, have a lot of respect for, um, Mary Douglas. I think I've talked about her also previously. She wrote a book called Purity and Danger in the early 60s, um, so just as Faulkner was dying. Um, and there she talks about the power of the taboo and the violations of the ta taboo violations and uh, violations of the sacred and what have you. So there was a it's a fascinating book. Um, it has a lot of explanatory power. Um, the last thing I want to say here um, is that Faulkner portrays situations in the American Deep South that are that he finds problematic, um, that he thinks are um, 
are unhealthy, unethical, immoral, and what have you. So the way in which um, African Americans are treated in the American Deep South bothered him deeply. Uh, but like O'Connor, oftentimes because he is a white, in this case, male writer, um, he is pilloried as being part of the problem and not part of the solution. We have to remember that Flannery O'Connor and Faulkner were on the cutting edge, kind of all alone, of the civil rights movement and helping build momentum there. Um, so it'd be a real shame to miss that with some kind of reductive reading of Faulkner and Faulkner as um, a racist as we would conceive of a racist nowadays in 2021. Yeah. Um, are there problems? There could be, I'm open to the discussion, but to simply um, reject him as some might uh, when he talks about these sorts of issues and, and tries to deal with how that's playing out in the American deep South, I think that's a little bit unfair and again, reductive. Yeah, no, I, I agree. There's, and there's more to it here and it, but, but the, uh, the abiding sense is the sense of something sacred that has been, has lost its relevance in the modern world, maybe, namely Miss Emily herself. Um, which nobody saw fit into the modern world and she herself didn't fit into the modern world. She'd become uh, not just wedded literally to the past, um, but incapable of moving on. And yet she's a monument of sorts and mm -hmm. she's described as a monument, a fallen monument. And, and what the news of her death, again, I go back to what, how the men responded with a sort of respectful affection for a fallen monument. It's not something that they could live with it's not something that they wanted to remain as it was. They wanted to tax her. She refused to be taxed. Um, that's how the novella began. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, there is a, a clear affection and respect for something that she symbolizes. And again, um, that, that holiness about her nonetheless is moldering just like the corpse of Homer who's beside her in her bed and with the iron gray streak of hair on the pillow again this is it's heavily symbolic and it does give a strong sense that even though the past was something that uh was in some sense of obscene absurd um garish nonetheless it's something that uh has been lost and and we're the poorer for it so there, there there's a sense that that sense of of i don't know if it's reverie but uh, certainly an elegiac uh, sense in the novel. Uh, and that, that adds to uh, the impression that this is a great writer. Um, yeah. It conveys that sense to the audience that for what, however garish the tale was and horrid it ends, that more has been conveyed than simply a sort of, a, a, as you say, a horror novel or something. It's not, it's not it, there's more, there's much more to, than that here. Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, we have it, it's symbolically, uh, she's l almost literally married to a figure of death. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, instead of marriage conducing to life, she is married to death and brings out all sorts of rich concatenations uh, in your readings of these sorts of things. And you're right, it's the, the, uh, the townsfolk, the, the men folk of the town in particular, they have an affection for her. And it's uh, for what she death. symbolizes. Yes, so, so it is an affection, but I also read it as something of a reverence, but it's, it's a weird, complicated reverence because it's a reverence for a thing that's extremely problematic. They're proud of it. They're ashamed of it simultaneously. And it's almost the, the inheritance of the Old South then. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's vexing. And I mean, you can't quite be comfortable with the thing that you're reverencing 
but at the same time, it does require reverence, and there's a terrible cost if you don't. Um, this is a dangerous tale in many ways, and it, 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 it can hide that under a beautiful veneer of eloquence and what have you, but there's horror beneath there. There is horror inside the walls of the text, uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of the structure of the story here um, that is housed within. At the center of this whole thing, is, it's not quite a whitened sepulcher, but you get the point. Um, it, it's a charnel house. There is death within at the core of all of this stuff. And that's what Miss Emily and, the, and by way of extension, the American Deep South is married to. It's married to this death. Um, so Faulkner does a tremendous amount of beautiful work in a comparatively short story here. I think it really, really speaks to his powers, not just as a, as a craftsman, but as a true artist. I mean, this is art, uh, whatever else you want to call it. Did you have anything further to add, Dr. Well, Madison? we've said, so we mentioned the numinous. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned uh, specifically Rudolf Otto, um, who was influential on, on Lewis and also T.S. Eliot, uh, it also should be said. So this, this work, Das Heilige, or the idea of the holy as it's translated into English, um, mm-hmm. which I, I recommend. Um, I think it's uh, quite evocative and quite helpful. I, I'm always curious, and I have been curious about it ever since I came across his work, why this appears in the 20th century. I don't mean Otto's uh, work, but this preoccupation with the holy in a time that where Christianity as a public profession is on the wane and yeah. in some ways is being uh, killed off and purposefully killed off by the intellectual elite and what it means when an author evokes that same sense in his work and we acknowledge and reverence that is there still a a, a religiosity um, in post I don't know if this qualifies as post-christian writing but it's certainly not explicitly christian writing no, no. and as a christian uh, academic who is interested in these things and and the development of uh, such things uh, i mean you mentioned that this uh, could you say something more about how this appears in the medieval period and and you you said they have a, a fascination with horrible things at certain uh, stages is yeah. there a, is it, do you have an explanation for that and how that might fit with what we have here I do not. I mean, okay. Radcliffe, Radcliffe c- combines or, or contributes something to uh, the unfinished explanation. Um, Shelley herself does to some extent, as you say, Otto does as well. I think for me, Mary Douglas does as well, but I'm far from an answer yet. Mm. Um, but nevertheless, we find ourselves drawn to it. Um, I will say this. Um, we have to remember that I think our, our hunger for the horror story and for the holy, which there, there, there's a connection there. There is there's, a connection there's, there's there. a, there's I think Otto's on to something. Danger. Yeah. yeah. And we have to remember, like, especially as it first begins to arise from the book of Exodus and then onwards, that holiness, as we typically understand it traditionally, is, first of all, that's set apart from the uh, everyday by a sense of sacred awe and wonder. But then, of course, it's a smaller subgroup, like a Venn diagram, then of that stuff, God sanctions those certain things and says, okay, amongst those, these are good. And so we say that's holy. Okay. Yeah. So it's set apart from the every day by a sense of sacred awe and wonder. And that awe and wonder can take the form of terror. Sometimes not certainly not all the time. As it does in scripture. Yeah. 
and the wrath so, of God and the presence yeah, of God and destroying. I, yeah, I see this as as part of the image of God in a Christian anthropology and our understanding of who we are in terms of identity. One of the things that defines us is is a need for that, a, a fascination with that. We're drawn to it. We commune with it, even sometimes in its its uh, horrific forms. Uh. Can I explain that? No, I, I can't explain that any more than I could comprehend and give you a comprehensive explanation of God. It's something that's bigger than my own psyche and my own mind can possibly get around. I can apprehend it, but I can't comprehend it. Yeah, no, I, I yeah. So it's something about even for those who are not going to acknowledge God, acknowledging that there is something awesome about the created order, which even as mundane as we might experience, it remains there. And at times, yeah, I, and I, I think it gets displaced to really bizarre, inappropriate places in our time right now into things like scientism and environmentalism. They yeah. try to they try to make this these sorts of undertakings do what holy things have done in the past. And of course, they can't really support that. But when you sometimes hear these conversations about the, the in the age of covid, the authority of science, there creeps into many of these conversations if you're listening for it. Um, that's that's sacred hush that awe it's like this is this this comes to us yeah, from science. and the scientists should be revered as priests it. and let's not let's not break the taboo of questioning yeah and likewise with environmentalism where you know yeah. sacrifices are going to have to be made on the altar of the environment and those sacrifices might be you um <laughs> <laughs> and that's you know that's that's how this you will have no possessions works. and you will be happy yes you know. exactly exactly um and again, the same kind of uh, um, like Homer. At, <laughs> <laughs> yes, you look at um, figures like Greta Thunberg and people like this. I mean, yeah. she is outraged, but she's not just outraged. No, you and I would be outraged at, uh, you know, somebody cutting us off in traffic or something like that. Um, she's outraged because something holy has been yes violated and there's a wrath and people get behind that kind of thing they get worked up there's a religious fervor and all of a sudden people stop speaking rationally and they're fervid fervidly pursuing yeah and, and yeah and, the, and the, the understanding of nature has been uh nature is taken as a an ideal and an ideal that may not be <clears throat> desecrated by uh, carbon footprints let alone human habitation let alone human culture let alone hu cultivation let alone uh, agriculture none of that i mean you get a sense that in, in this sense of the holy is only going to be appeased when there is no more human life so there's something deeply anti-humanistic about the whole enterprise and yeah. the whole conveyance of uh, holiness there that does to some degree fit with this genre of gothic it and it gives a lot of explanatory power to the appeal of post-humanism as we're seeing it deploy itself right now. Yes. So it, it works very much hand in glove with um, concerns for the environment, uh, many of which are totally legitimate. Yep. But making it a religious thing that, I mean, I used to sort of smirk and I, I, I didn't take it very seriously when I heard the first sort of religious tones in begin to inhabit uh, conversations about the environment. I thought it was kind of whack job, fringe stuff. Nobody's going to take this seriously. How could they possibly take it seriously? And now it's a mass movement um, held by world leaders, um, oftentimes. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's, it's not something to be lightly dismissed anymore. No, indeed. 
Well, I think that's a good note on which to end it, Bill. Um, yes. I think we're going to circle back on this. You and I had talked about when we finished the plan to season four to coming back to some of the themes that have come up, maybe revisiting uh, Lewis and Tolkien and, uh, and, but these very ideas that we're talking about now, as well as maybe a retrospective on the whole of the four seasons that we've put before us. But um, next week, we're moving on to something rather different. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of your favorite authors of all time. It's the resplendent Sylvia Plath. Yeah. Uh, who is um, rightly held up as one of the most influential writers and more specifically poets of the second half of the 20th century. That is true. Whether you find that uh, wonderful or lamentable, uh, it's hard to say. Sylvia Plath has an adoring following like few yes. others. Um, she has absolute oceans of fans, quite aggressive fans. Um, so she doesn't need Dr. Masson uh, to contribute. She, she can do quite well without uh, his immediate and vocal support. Um, yeah, so we're we're, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanna, we'll talk about that next week. I'm curious about that. Very, the very phenomena uh, that she has that sort of rabid following is very interesting. That's right. Um, but uh, that's all we have for you uh, for William Faulkner today, folks. We'd like to thank you for uh, listening. And I am Dr. Bill Friesen. This is Dr. Scott Masson, as always. And this is Paideia Today. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Bye.